we, we are uh, concluding our summer sermon series in the, the Ten Commandments called the Ten Words Today. And we're on the, the Tenth Commandment. Next week we start a series that'll take us through First Peter uh, in, a, in a series called Against the Tide, but we'll unpack that more next week. Uh, we're on the Tenth Word, the Tenth Commandment, so let me uh, read that for us. Uh, pray with me again real quick. God, as we look to scripture, help us by your spirit. Help us receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that we've been seeing through this series that when you uh, really dive into the 10 words, the the 10 commandments, uh, you you begin to realize that they're full of life. They're not just a a list of uh, things you shouldn't do simply because you shouldn't, right? We've seen something of the Lord's heart in them. God revealed them. Uh, to Moses, of course, the 10 words, but the 10 words also reveal a lot about God. I mean, we've sensed, I hope, that the, the goodness, the wisdom, the concern that the commandments express toward us, and simultaneously, they then tell us what God is like, that God is good and wise and concerned, that, that God cares and wants the best for human beings whom he made in his own image. So today, we, we conclude with this capstone commandment And I don't know if you noticed upon just hearing it, it's different categorically than all of the rest of the commandments. So to get at that, would you read it with me out loud? Let's read it together, shall we? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The first nine commandments all prohibit specific actions. And if we rallied together all of those other human beings closest to us, they could probably bear witness to some degree whether or not we were toeing the line, right? Whether or not we had abided by those commandments or whether we had maybe broken them because it would largely be observable. This one's not observable, right? Jesus unpacked the commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. He helped us understand the fullness of them. And every time he said, hey, it's not just about avoiding one action. It's really about the condition of your heart. But this commandment from the very beginning points to the condition of our heart. See, this commandment is less concerned with what we do and more concerned with what we desire. That's what coveting is, right? Covet means to desire greatly something that belongs to another person, to desire. It's an internal thing, a a heart thing, uh, because desire first has to do with what we want. What's going on in here? So that raises a wonderful question. What do you really want? What, what do we really want? In, in their very good book on the Ten Commandments, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon make a poignant observation. 
We live in a world of manufactured need where advertising creates desire. The surest way to drive someone crazy in our culture is to ask the pressing question, what do you really want? It turns out that we do not know what we want other than we want it and we want it now. What do we really want? What do you really want? And we're filled with desires, right? We, we grapple with them, the, the desire to be loved, the desire for success, for respect, for prestige, for importance, for, for money, for a sense of belonging, for things, for intimacy, for accomplishment, significance. I mean, we're all filled with desires. But what do we really want? And another question worth considering, if every desire we experience was met, would we be satisfied? I think the answer is no. See, our problem is that we try to content ourselves with that which will never truly satisfy. That's the grace behind the 10 words, right? They're intended to keep us from seeking satisfaction of our desire in the wrong places and wrong ways because those wrong places and wrong ways don't satisfy and they end up causing us more pain than we had with in the beginning. Now, now technically, coveting doesn't mean simply wanting something you don't have. It, it, it means wanting something somebody else has. It's, it's the grass is greener effect, right? It's looking at something someone else has or somebody else's life and, and, and thinking, that looks pretty good over there. And I kind of want some of that. And here's how it flows. I mean, we experience desire. We, we see others. They appear satisfied. And, and we think, if, if only I had their stuff, if, I, if only I had their life, I'd be happy. If only. Right. Said King Ahab in an Old Testament Bible story, if only I had Naboth's vineyard, I'd be happy. Naboth owned a vineyard. Owned a vineyard. King Ahab wanted it. He asked, Naboth said, no way. Ahab told his wife, and the result was that Naboth was murdered at the doing of Jezebel, right? Naboth was murdered, thus breaking, of course, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But that was not the first commandment to be broken in that string of events. It was the tenth commandment broken first. If only, if only I had that vineyard. See, the if-only reasoning makes promises it can't keep and in the end leads to death, either literal, like Naboth, or spiritual, in the sense that you live perpetually in a state of unsatisfied desire, always wanting things that are just out of your reach and believing the lie that if you could just get those things, you would finally be satisfied. That that restlessness itch would get scratched and you would be content. I was a, a business major in college, and as a business major at Miami of Ohio, you had to take the requisite marketing 301 class. And I, I remember it vividly. It was taught by uh, a well-respected marketing executive from the Cincinnati area. Miami was good like that. They had practitioners in to kind of teach classes and things. And I remember it was a 301 class, so big class, lots of, lots of people, probably 150 
in the class. And I remember uh, one day the professor was talking kind of in the first week or so, an introduction, about the purpose of marketing. And he said that the purpose of marketing was the creation of desire. His claim was that marketing aims at creating desire so that a consumer will make a decision to purchase your product. And I remember, I remember being just in the moment being struck by that. I wasn't a follower of Christ quite yet, but I was just struck by that claim. And I, I, this was unlike me in big classes back then, but I raised my hand. And I, I asked a question that went something like this. Now, Professor, I thought marketing was about communicating how the thing you make might meet the needs a person was already experiencing. I never thought of it as trying to create the need in the person. I mean, if we're trying to make someone feel like they need something that they don't really need, aren't there some ethical issues there? His response, he laughed out loud in front of the entire class. Uh, and and the, clear, the, the clear unspoken message was, oh, how naive. <laughs> Look at the cute little college boy. Is, isn't that nice? Um, my, my, my own kind of growth as a, as a human being has involved a lot of uncertainty about myself. So back in that stage, I was unsure of myself in almost every area of life. Right? So when something like that happened, I would typically think, oh, I must be wrong, I must... But on this one, I kind of I thought um, I was onto something. And it turns out I was right. A profound change came over our country in the last century. It started after the First World War and really got legs after the Second World War. Listen to this from a Business Insider article titled, There's a Staggering Conspiracy Behind the Rise of Consumer Culture. Listen to this. Americans weren't always addicted to buying things long before U.S. consumers racked up $11.3 trillion in aggregate debt. People used to save money for things they actually needed. But in the age of plenty that followed World War I, corporations countered the threat of overproduction with a manipulative psychological strategy. Quote, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture, wrote Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers. People must be trained to desire, to want things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This conspiracy, uh, no secret at all in the realm of history, enabled by new sophistication in advertising and supported by the government was shockingly effective. You can read all about it. There's also, the BBC made a documentary on it, which I haven't watched but want to. Another business leader of the time called this new approach, quote, the new economic gospel of consumption. See, our culture is bent on nurturing covetousness, creating a desire for stuff we don't need for the purpose of profit. It's not that business is bad. Business is good. It's not that profit is bad. Profit's fine. It's the pivot from seeing human beings as human beings to seeing human beings primarily as consumers. And we live in this reality every day, you know, being addressed by 
uh, advertisements, more as consumers than human beings, were bombarded daily right, with all-out efforts to create desire in us. And you know how those ads work. That, that car that looks so appealing, it's not just a car in a lot. There are people using it. And man, their life looks great. They're settled and quiet or they're out having fun in that new Subaru. Nothing against Subarus, love Subarus. <laughs> but you know, right? So it's, it's positioning a thing in the realm of a life experience someone else is having that looks very desirable and hey, I would really like a piece of that. So if I just buy this thing, maybe I can get a little of that. It's everywhere. And we haven't even touched on social media, right? Instagram alone is built entirely on the reality of people portraying their best selves and best lives for the purpose of becoming a standard of desire. Because who wouldn't want to spend the summer on a yacht in the Mediterranean, right? If I could just have that. So the, the answer is, where does all of this end? Right? If it's just the creation of desire, doesn't that play right in what the 10th commandment is talking about, the 10th word? I mean, it's just, just restlessness forever. Where does it end? Reporter famously asked John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? To which he answered, you probably know, know the answer, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Never satisfied. Never enough. You know, it's not a new concept, be it money or things or, or, or whatever. Not a new concept. The Bible talks about it. Those who love money never have enough. Those who love wealth are never satisfied with their income. Again, it's not that wealth and income are bad. They're not. We need business. We need businesses to make a profit. Everybody needs a job, right? That's all good, and I think exactly the way God created it. But when you love the wealth and you love the income... You're never satisfied. When you love a thing, you always want more things, right? If only I had Naboth's vineyard, then I'd be happy. So if it's true that we desire that which is not fulfilling, not satisfying, if in us there are desires for some things that would appear to provide satisfaction, but in the end really don't, then there must be some kind of problem going on here? A problem with our desires, a problem with our desiring. So what is it that's going on actually? Because philosophies and, and world religions have all identified this problem. I mean, philosophies like Stoicism, religions like Buddhism have identified this desiring problem. Those two in particular recognize that our desires are messed up and if we're ever to be successful in life, we must somehow overcome them. But they say that the desire itself is the problem. The desire itself is evil. Thus, our goal in life should be to eliminate all desire uh, uh, completely from our lives. And, and when we've eliminated all desire, then we'll be satisfied because we won't want anything. Then we won't be misguided by runaway desires, right? But that is not the Christian understanding of things at all. The Bible is very clear. God created things good. And remember, when he created you and me, human beings, he looked at that part of creation and said, this is very good. And we're just bundles of desire, right? It's not that the desiring is bad. It's that 
the world is fallen and everything got broken and bent and tainted. And nowadays we have a bit of a desire disorder. Listen to Howard Wasson Willimon again. We were created to love God. And when that love is misdirected, life degenerates into a jumble of disordered desires. See, the Christian answer is not to eliminate desire altogether. That would be inhuman because God created us with desires. The answer is to refocus our desires upon their intended object, or in this case, their intended person. God, the Lord Jesus, the source of life and all true satisfaction. So back to the question, what do we really want? What we really want, what every human being really wants, whether they're at a place to realize it or not, is a mended relationship with God. That's the thing. And until we experience that mended relationship, we're restless inside. Just a bundle of misdirected desires, running like crazy to find satisfaction, bouncing from one thing to the next, holding out hope that if only we get the next thing, we'll be happy and find peace. Retail therapy until it finally works. But it never works. What we want is a mended relationship with God. The, the, the Bible is full of this wonderful upside-down Logic, like the, these spiritual realities are different from our, our natural inclinations. Like, according to scripture, the opposite of fear is not courage, but love, right? Perfect love casts out fear. According to the Bible, the opposite of coveting is not acquisition, it's contentment. And the Bible presents contentment as a spiritual secret. Remember this from the Apostle Paul? I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Good. What's the secret? You know, in some ways, the, the Ten Commandments might seem a little repetitive as we've been going through this. You know, if coveting means wanting somebody else's stuff or life or whatever, have, haven't we already covered that in the other commandments? I mean, adultery, wanting something else belongs to someone else. Don't steal stuff. Somebody else's stuff, it's their stuff. Don't take it. There's a rabbinic line of thought that interprets the, the tenth word in this way. If you keep the first nine commandments, then you won't want someone else's life because you'll be completely satisfied with your own. Now that's a nice thought, but as followers of Jesus, we know that spiritually it's not quite that simple. And it's a big if, if you keep the first nine commandments. I mean, the idea of a com being completely satisfied with your own life, I mean, that's rather appealing. But the if, if you keep the first nine commandments. And the problem is, you know, I know me, you know you. We're not going to keep these things. As followers of Jesus, we understand that we can't keep these things in our own strength. We're so broken and in need that we're never going to do this. And Jesus showed us the full meaning of the commandments. The commandment against murder includes not just murder, but unresolved anger. 
that, that, that experience in our hearts where we take a, a frustration and, and brew, brew up a batch of resentment cookies out of it, right? And that's the thing. Or, or with adultery, you take a, an experience of attraction and you, you foster that, you nurture it, and it, then it becomes lust because you, you pursue it. And this is, this is in us. Our, our problem is not that we just need to refrain from doing things that are wrong. Our problem, according to the Bible, is that we are naturally inclined to do things that are wrong. It's the nature, not just the action, the sinful nature. And we can't fix that part. You can try super hard to stop doing bad things, but that will not fix your nature. What Jesus came to do was to fix our nature, to make us new. And that is why this is such good news. You know, throughout this series, we've looked at what Jesus said. He said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the the Ten Commandments and scripture that came before him. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fulfill them, complete them in, in some way. So Jesus came to fulfill the law, but then the apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one, Jews and Gentiles, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So Jesus came to set aside the law with its commandments. So how does that jibe with fulfilling the law? How can you fulfill the law and set it aside at the same time? So in the Bible in front of you or your Bible at home, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. It really means an old covenant and a new covenant. And the old covenant, uh, God agreed to keep his end of the deal, but we were expected to keep our end of the deal. The, The covenant was cut in Genesis 15 where God came and met with Abram and Back in that day when a covenant was made between people, they'd take an animal and they would bleed it out into a puddle so all the animal's blood would be right there. Then they'd slice the thing in half lengthwise, put one half on this side and one half on that side. And the two people cutting the covenant would stand across from one one another and they would walk through the pool of blood. This person would go this way and then this person would go this way. And what they were saying was, may it be so to me like this animal if I do not keep all of the stipulations of this covenant. It was a blood covenant. It's a contract promise, but you're linking your life to it. You're saying, I'm all in. I link my life to what I'm telling you I will do. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament about Moses like sprinkling the people with blood, that's like the, the, the mass version of this individual thing. He's sprinkling them with blood to remind them, hey, you're in the covenant You're walking through the pool of blood. You said that you would keep up your end of the deal. God will keep his end of the deal because he's good and faithful. You said that you'd keep your end of the deal. That's the old covenant. But as we just observed, we don't keep our end of the deal. So what makes the new covenant new is that in Jesus, God comes around to our side And it was to him as it should have been to us. He stood in our place and took all of the punishment for us not keeping our end of the deal. It was to him like that animal. 
He was killed. He bled in our place in that covenant relationship. Thus, the Apostle Paul can write this in Romans. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. A righteousness that's apart from the law. This is what it means that Jesus set aside the law. We don't come back into our amended relationship with God by obeying the law perfectly. We come back into amended relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because he stepped in front of us in that covenant commitment and took our punishment, stood in our place, did that for us. It was to him like it should have been to us. See, righteousness means right relationship, amended relationship. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been new. A, a restored relationship with God. So we could interpret this verse uh, reading in my translation now. Apart from obeying the law perfectly, amended relationship with God has been made known and is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. See, biblically, the call to us as human beings everywhere is to repent and believe. And that's, they'll sound like really churchy words. But when you break it down, it's actually very simple. Repent, the biblical word repent simply means to change your mind. To change your thinking about what's going on in this world, about who God is, about what's up, about what's happening when you first open your eyes from the pillow in the morning, and about who you are. To change your thinking. To align your life to the things that Jesus said. And, and believing means not just agreeing with religious claims in your head. It means trusting your life to what Jesus has done for us the way all of you are trusting your weight to the seat in which you are seated now. You're trusting it to hold you. That's what believe means. We trust Jesus to hold us, all the things that he did. So why do we covet? Because our relationship with God is broken and we feel restless and unsatisfied. That's why we covet. What do we really want? Amended relationship with God, for real. Not just religion, a legit mended relationship with God. What did Jesus come to offer? Amended relationship with God that brings a kind of peace that passes understanding because it scratches that itch of restlessness by satisfying our deepest desire, which is the mended relationship with God. Hey, we might have something here. This is kind of sounding like good news. The life we've always wanted. Life is not perfect. We have big ups and downs, right? We know this, but the life we've always wanted, the life we've really wanted is available to us right now. And from our perspective, from our view now, there's a lot more going on here and this is like a theology 301, 401 conversation, but from our perspective, it's only one decision away. God's doing all the drawing and even enabling the decision. I understand all of that theologically. But at some point, we all have to humble ourselves before God and decide to do that. And it's that decision to trust Jesus with your life. It, it's the decision to humble yourself, to admit 
that you have a need that you can't provide for, to confess your sin, your wrongdoing to God, to name it as wrong and say it to him, to ask Jesus to come into your life and to help you by the Holy Spirit. I have a friend who says that in the Western church, we like to make Christianity complicated and easy when in fact it is simple and hard. The gospel is true. Jesus Christ is alive right now and he's inviting you to come home to him. So do that. There's no reason not to. Right at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation comes uh, this scripture. The spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, other followers of Jesus, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let those who hear say, come. Let those who are thirsty come and let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. The free gift of the water of life. Amended relationship with God based entirely on what Jesus has done for us on the cross, not our own efforts for ourselves. no religious striving, just grace. Just God's grace given to us as a gift in which we can trust. May it be so to all of us in the Lord's goodness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, will you? God, we pray that you would help us where we are. We're all in different places and we know that. God, please help us where we are to, to turn away all of, uh, from all of those distracting desires that are not you uh, and help us to turn toward you. God, you know what each of us in this room and, and watching today need and I pray that you would draw us toward you, that you would help us to turn to you, to seek you, to humble ourselves to come empty and open to you. And please, God, pour out your spirit in us. Bring the fullness of life that you came, you said, that you said you came to bring, that we might know you and follow you and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.